0: This new body of work, these new sculptures, you know, if if down the road I become ready to move on from these, I'm sure I will. But I feel like the positive shift and the permanent shift has been away from holding on to those resources with such an ironclad fist. It was started to feel stifled by it, you know. That like, and the thing is, is this I'd created all of those rules and regulations for myself. It was. You know, just how I was used to working that like there's always a certain number of things or or a a final end to this that's going to happen or I have to use this in this way. And I, I just scrapped it. I said, you know, I've really had enough of the rules.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 74th episode, we have Chicago artist Heather Meckelson on. To discuss her work, which explores material through installation and most recently a series of sculptures for a show open right now and it runs through February 15th at 65 grand in Chicago. It's called Now Slices, and we talk about that a bit later on in the podcast, so please stay tuned for that. If this is the first time you listen to Studio Break, we want to remind you that we have a number of different interviews available on studiobreak.com. Again, you can access all of the old episodes through the archive on the left sidebar. Each of those have images of the artist's work, links to their websites, links to the iTunes store if you want to subscribe to the podcast. And if that's not enough, you can like our Facebook page where we provide updates from some of our past guests, announce future guests, things like that. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break, or if you want to follow me, I'm at David Linoway. You can also follow us on Tumblr, Studio-Break. All right, that's all of the little things out of the way. Let's get to this interview with Heather Mickelson. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm happy to be joined this afternoon by Heather Meckelson. How are you?
0: I'm fine, thanks
1: it's great to have you on and you know we've been kind of exchanging emails and i don't know one of the fun things about doing this is just all the all the people that i wind up uh you know seeing their work and becoming interested so uh, again thanks for taking the time
0: i appreciate it thank you and so we were just kind of
1: you know meeting each other i guess virtually but um could you kind of uh, maybe give me a background on uh where you're from
0: i was born in new york upstate new york and um uh, my family moved around a lot down uh down the east coast down into the south. We moved like every i'd say every six months to a year and then um we landed in Ohio finally and I kind of spent some formative years there um and then uh for my last years of high school, I wound up in Indianapolis went to Purdue University for two years, transferred to the school of the art institute ninety five and um have just been kind of sitting in one place since then. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems, again, uh, just in terms of just uh, seeing where you've been showing and, and things like that, it, you know, you're certainly very, very active in Chicago. So.
0: Yes, I've been here a long time. <laughs>
1: And so, so was art something that you were always interested in, in, in pursuing or growing up as, and again, it's, it's such a repetitory kind of thing for me, but I'm, I'm always just kind of curious if, uh, you were the drawer or, you know, somebody that came to it much later, but.
0: Um, I mean, I guess I always, I, I'm sure I, like all kids, I was super creative, <laughs> you know, but no, mm-hmm. I didn't set out to be an artist at all. I was really interested in the sciences and, um. And really had no plans whatsoever i didn't even think art could be a career, but um I was really sort of set on going into something like medicine. Um, mm-hmm. I think around my senior year of high school i uh, I took an art history class, and I mean i'd been taking art classes through high school, but it was just one thing among many that I was into um, but that art history class that I took was really um formative for me and I I think at that point too I was in a really small high school like I graduated with maybe 55 or 60 people it was very small right right and um and having been a sort of jack of all trades prior to that I noticed that you know there wasn't like the the, the token art girl <laughs> in mm-hmm. my class and so <laughs> I sort of fell into that role and um and then but I was was still very much interested in uh, some kind of branch of science, maybe medical illustration or something like that. Um, when I went to Purdue, I um, majored in psychology and minored in fine arts, thinking that, well, maybe there was something where those two meet. Um, when I transferred to the Art Institute, I was considering art therapy. I got in for painting and drawing, mm-hmm. um, which is how I started art. But then um, but then I, I ended up spending all of my time I shouldn't even say this, but I skipped a bunch of classes to <laughs> I skipped a bunch of painting classes to right, make sculptures. Right. And I was like, Oh, I should really just take sculpture classes. Oh, no, so that's, then just, I, that's perfect. Go ahead. Yeah. But, um, but that's, I ended up just sort of falling in love with learning materials and techniques. And, um, I really explored every Avenue I could and, and it just kind of stuck. And then I, Realized that was the only thing I wanted to do, I guess, from that point.
1: But was it a, a big shift moving from, you know, Purdue to, you know, the the mecca of art schools, really?
0: It, yes. Yes, it was a very big shift. It was very difficult. I moved here when I was 19, so, and I had already, you know, I'd spend my time in the dorms at Purdue. I was certainly not going to move back into the dorms when I transferred, but I probably should have in hindsight. Uh yeah, I was really thrust into this big, dirty, dark city
1: <laughs> right right,
0: and uh it was tough it was a, f- a few tough years, but um but yeah, I mean, you know it, there was there was a definite learning curve, but tough love makes you stronger. <laughs>
1: sure sure well and was it was it something too where you were able to kind of you know hit up museums and kind of see pieces maybe that you were studying you know prior to that that you obviously it's not like uh you know Indiana doesn't have anything but you know being in chicago's
0: well comparatively it's yeah it was a huge shift i mean i i feel like in ohio you know my my mom in particular was really good at getting me out to cultural events and things um going to indianapolis they have a really Stellar museum there, but um, but no, I mean it's, it's it doesn't even compare. I think I the first semester I was at the Art Institute, I went into the um, Ryerson Library at the inside the museum, the Art Institute, and um, I found out that you could actually look out and fl- or check out and look at the actual sketchbooks of artists that you admire, and they'll they bring it out to you with you know the white gloves, and you start flipping through it, and it was. It was totally amazing, and um, and yeah, I mean it was it was a paradigm shift for sure, but um, it's you know it was easy to become enchanted with the the art world in Chicago, and now it seems so small and familiar back then it was you know, dauntingly large.
1: <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> well, and so, I i mean, you kind of indicated already that you'd maybe started and, and pursued, you know, something of the uh, painting and drawing nature, but what, I mean, what kind of led you towards a uh, sculpture? You, you were talking a bit about materials, but was there any kind of classes yeah. or, or some kind of experience or, you know, you just collecting things? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I guess I was sort of collecting things and I was, um, playing around with these sort of marionette forms, I think, was the first thing. I mean, I, 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 when I transferred, I had a few too many academics and not enough studios. And so, um, but I had most of the core requirements taken. And so I took a 3D class and I'd never actually liked 3D whatsoever. Um, but that class got me thinking in just sort of a different way. And I think the problem solving that comes with, you know, working with materials, In the three-dimensional sense and how they transform and also the um just the conceptual implications of like what you choose to use and how you use it and how you can transform those things all of that became so enriching to the way I was thinking whereas painting and drawing I was and you know I was always very good technically but I just never really had the inspiration for the subject matter I guess And, uh, so I signed up for, um, metalworking course with Lisa Norton and she ended up becoming a mentor for me throughout the rest of my undergraduate years. And we did some independent advisor, um, courses that way and stuff. So I I think from that point on, it was metalworking. I, you know, learned woodworking. I learned foundry techniques. I, um, anything and everything that I could sink my teeth into, it was, you know, I was kind of rabid to find out and learn as much as I could about materials and how to how to manipulate them
1: and so at the time I mean obviously like in in terms of like introductory courses you might be doing something that are, I don't know just kind of assignment based but in terms mm-hmm. of things that you wanted to make after that then um mm-hmm. you know what, what were you interested in because it sounds like again you had a lot of technical proficiency to maybe you know explore a lot of different things
0: I mean, you know if I've always I guess the science interest always carried through because there was always some kind of like first, it was a lot of um not uh i wouldn't i wouldn't say like figurative sculpture but a lot of sculptures that had to do with um body systems and movements and just the the mechanics of the body and then um and then I got really into some site specific work when I was a student at oxbow. I took a course in, of um site specific art in the landscape and that was i think the first time that i just had that complete wow moment of, um, making something and and feeling so so sublimely happy making it. And so I kind of continued on that front for a while, um, really thinking about place and location and reacting to sites in particular. Um, and so then it it sort of took a little bit of an abstract turn. So, uh, and then the landscape thing, you know, that kind of filtered back in through my work up until, uh, gosh, from the time I graduated from the Art Institute '99, in probably all the way up to 2005, uh, when I entered grad school, things I started to look at things with a different spin.
1: That's kind of what is more reflective of maybe the the work that's representative on your on your site. Those bodies of work.
0: Yeah, that that big body of work that's up on my website right now is. Um, that was all under the heading of debris field. And that was something that I started in grad school um, that dealt with the aftermath of natural disasters. And, um, you know, from, from living in a bunch of different places that were prone to natural disasters, you know, we'd evacuated from hurricanes in Florida and and certainly had our fair share of tornado warnings in Ohio and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think the turning point for me was uh, watching Hurricane Katrina hit and having it televised was just f- horrific, but horrifically fascinating. I couldn't turn away. And I started to feel that um, that sort of helplessness and that uh, guilt of always having escaped through the disaster unscathed. And, and I really wanted the—I I was getting frustrated with how the attention to this disruptions in people's normal lives, it was, you know, the attention span was pretty short. And so I kind of wanted to create like this temporal hiccup that would freeze the aftermath um, and turn it into this um, sort of like a resonating garden of detritus, and I would I would go through and I mean this I, I've always worked in projects like in project forms, and so I, I it's very typical for me to spend like a number of years exploring one thing until it's exhausted, and then moving on to the next. But mm-hmm. during the debris field thing, which um, took up the greater part of the last five years, um, I, I was sort of setting about trying to, um, make these big installations that were very fragmented. And I was, um, meticulously recreating items that I'd seen in the documentation of, um, of these disasters. It wasn't just Katrina, but it was everything, um, sort of like a composite and, um, and yeah, so I, I knew there was a, an end in sight, and I, I wanted to take all those fragments and sort of create one whole narrative out of them. Uh, and it did go on longer than I thought. I mean, there was a lot there to work with and everything. But, um, but yes, as, as I don't know if no. you've been able to see any images from the 65 Grand Show, but things have taken a turn into a new sort of land of projects. About yeah,
1: Right, right. But in terms too of, of getting into uh, um, you know, a program that's that as you kind of maybe described earlier, um, you know, maybe I guess elevated or changed the way that you thought about your work and maybe Mm -hmm. kind of moved it away from kind of more direct associations with landscape and, and kind of exploring, uh, uh, wreckage and, and debris Mm -hmm. and things like that. How Mm -hmm. did you wind up exploring that, that idea afterwards? I mean, was it something where you were, you know, reading theory or, you know, specific uh, looking up like histories of, uh, you know, different regional parts of the States or.
0: Well, for the research that went into the Debris field work. Uh you know, I was in the midst of grad school, so there was plenty of theory. Theories abound. <laughs> and, um sure. and uh you know, I had my favorites, but I was really uh my favorite was always uh Jameson. I always liked what he had to say and and I became uh sort of enamored with uh Maurice Blanchot and um and he has a a beautiful book of fragments on writing about the the ruin and and so the, i mean i i think overall the idea of ruin like what our ruins would look like um was a sort of pervasive idea behind that and then um there were other things too i mean i started to read about uh victims from traumatic experiences and how they react um that with you know large Uh, verbal gaps in their stories there would be long pauses and silences that things of just that just couldn't be explained and so I was thinking about that as far as how that would translate into a physical object or a physical installation with the negative spaces in between the uh, you know the detritus and it was all very um, fascinating for me I mean I there was there was a large vocabulary of I, I called it a vocabulary, but it was a, a long list of items that I, I just kept seeing as I would sort of flip through the documentation over and over. And Roland Bart with his idea of the studium and the punctum, um, was also very, um, very much a part of that, of like the thing that pierces you is the punctum. It's not the thing in the photograph that you're supposed to be attracted to. It's the thing that haunts you and, and won't let go um and so it, yeah it really was all encompassing i mean i i think i looked at it from every angle and then having looked through so much of the photo documentation of disasters i started to think about photography itself as a ruin and um reading more about that in um camera lucida and and that sort of uh, vein of writing uh yeah i i mean it really did it had tentacles in, I think, everything that surrounded it.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, too, I mean, is that something that made you, I don't know, cha- like, change the way that you looked about your things, the things that, you know, you've kind of accumulated over your life?
0: Yes, that's a great question. Very much so, yeah. I, I mean, and I started thinking about how, um, you know, this interruption, normalcy, like, the 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 whole story of these events to me were summed up in these very personal items from people like uh you know someone's china pattern that was thrown 2 miles across their land and um and and how that in itself was such a succinct emblem of the disruption of their lives that happened in a split second and um and so i would look around at the things in my own life and and yeah i mean it was you know it's um it was a little bit apocalyptic in a way because not to make light of it or anything, but you know, it's, it, it was a, it, it really did, it can take you to a very dark place. And when you're looking through the ruins of somebody's life and you start to see your own life as very, and the the sort of solid home that you create it becomes or seems very impermanent after a while, I suppose. Yeah.
1: It's, it's really, it's interesting in, in terms of just thinking about something to kind of become, in, I don't know, interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, and and again, it's maybe that's just uh, the curiosity in anyone, but you kind of. I I find myself for some reason, and of course I'll edit this out because it makes me sound extremely creepy. Um, <laughs> I I well I don't know what it is. I like movies about serial killers. There's something about hmm. there's something about some compulsive nature that
0: like the morbid curiosity.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I was definitely gonna edit this out because I'll sound terrible. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's something about that. You know, you want to kind of find some meaning for something, maybe, or
0: yeah. It's like trying to make sense of the worst thing you can imagine. Exactly. And that's like a big part of it is this human compulsion to constantly make sense of this thing that is incomprehensible. You know, I mean, for for those of us who are just watching and helpless – it's it's very difficult to comprehend the magnitude of what that must feel like and and there were always signs i should say in those installations the debris field installations there were always signs of mitigation of like you know post event recovery and i i had to always shine a light on the fact that we are a very driven species to recover we constantly try to make sense of the chaos we you know we grit out even with airline disasters, the way they recreate them in this gridded space to try and put them back together and to make sense of them, and so in in the end, in hindsight, I look back at those installations and I see I see them sort of at the meeting point between forensics and memorial. That in some way they're trying to make sense of it, and the other way they're trying to just remember and focus on what others have lost. And I you know I felt very strongly about it, but I also began to feel incredibly inadequate as as someone who you know would be able to really get people to look mm-hmm. and pause and think about it i i think you get to a point where um you know as an artist you you see the, the sort of finite capabilities that you have to affect society and the world around you and um i think when i got to that point i was like it's it's time to to move
1: along. Right, right. Well, and I guess too, to, to be very specific about those pieces for a bit before we, you know, move on to what you're currently working on. So in terms sure. of, you know, these objects that you kind of hoard or kind of, you know, sounds like compulsively record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so then, so then you're, are, are you kind of recreating all of these from objects that you're buying? Are you finding any objects and kind of incorporating them back into these installations or how does that process work?
0: the process worked in that i would i would see the object say say for example i would see um uh you know a, pair, a set of white mini blinds that had, had been tangled up and, and and thrown around and then there was maybe like a, a handbag wrapped in it or something and so i would go out and i would purchase a, a new set of white mini blinds to the dimensions that i thought the that was represented in the photograph and then i i basically would act as the destructive force um and i would I would do all sorts of acts upon them to to get them to look um, convincing, and then, in some cases, uh, I was able to find like new materials, and I would use those. But I, I never, once I really figured out what I wanted the parameters of the process to be, I really avoided the sort of found object or the um, the worn out, already sort of destroyed object. Because it, it had a different, you know, the things that end up getting whipped around and thrown about have a very different sort of destructive quality to them as opposed to something that's been weathered and aged over a long period of time. And so I having becoming really particular about trying to recreate what I saw in the photograph, I I realized that I I had to just do it myself from the start.
1: I used to frame pictures and frame art. And so, you know, one of the mm-hmm. things that you think about is just like a weathering or, you know, something like you're kind mm-hmm. of talking about, you seeing like an old sign that's you know, become so sunbeaten that it's just a, it looks completely different. And yeah. it makes me think about something, you know, that you're destroying that's that's kind of perfect in a way. Right? You know what I mean?
0: They definitely didn't look very new after I got done with them. But... <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, what was the, what was the crate? Did you drive over anything with your vehicle? I didn't something?
0: drive over anything. No, um, there was uh, like one thing, I guess uh, this would be a good example. Like there was um, oftentimes this very weathered-looking plastic sheeting or something like a, a polyethylene film, you know, that would be um, hanging in tatters. And, and so having a new role of polyethylene film, I was thinking about what would have actually caused all of the abrasions and the tattering. And so then I would take things like, um, you know, roof shingles, asphalt roof shingles, and I would sand down— the plastic, very, you know, meticulously, but with a roof shingle, and I would, um, I would pierce it through with like a, a wooden stake or something like that to give it, you know, as as much, to ground it in as much truth as I could. But, um, some things were were very much, um, almost like faux finishing, where you, you know, put on a surface, and like you apply a surface to something that's just going to give it a different kind of tint or hue or something to that effect. But, um, but yeah, there was, (laughs) there was no driving over anything. (laughs) Not, not, not that I can remember, but, um, but there's certainly was a lot of, uh, abrading and pounding and shaping and, and whatever you can think of. I mean, a lot of the things ended up being coated in sand, which, you know, entailed using a lot of different adhesives. And, um, I even at one point got so crazy enough to, um, to make my own sort of, uh, um, grit, (laughs) if you will, Mm -hmm. like, um, you know, finding little tiny bits of clay or like the, the little pebbles on top of the shingles, I would take those off and, and those would be adhered to one of the, some of the objects too. So it, uh I, I would also use a lot of liquid starch if it was something fabric based so that it would hold its sort of shape and become this very stiff sculpture in itself um i'm trying to think what else there was a there was a lot of casting of cement there was um i i would do a lot with lighting also so i would, uh, the shadows and the light would become part of the formal compositions as well I I also forgot to mention the fact that when I was actually installing the objects to make the full installations I would for my own purposes and my own entertainment I would um I would look at these paintings of um of disasters you know um from romantic masters like Jericho and Turner and um, think about how they also were trying to put this human compulsion of order on top of chaos by, by aestheticizing the event. And, um, you know, their, their formal tools, their formal compositional tools would become uh, something to sort of help me make sense of what I was going to do with the room. And, and I never, I, I didn't actually share those, you know during the shows or the exhibitions um occasionally you know during artist talks they would they would be shown or or in publications they might be referenced but that was really more of a studio tool for me
1: in terms of designing an installation you know mm-hmm. how how did that process work in, in terms of did you kind of usually like acquire the spaces and then you have to Figure out what you're going to do with them because I think one of the maybe misconceptions that I don't know somebody just coming to it might have is is to think like oh this looks so random but obviously you know you're describing a very labor laborious process in terms of yeah. how to manipulate all these all these uh,
0: components to it. They were always very considered. It really depended on the the space itself. And when I was at UIC, you know, they had a variety of spaces that we would put up our are working for, um, the critiques and, and you're, you know, certainly able to use those spaces for practicing whatever you needed to do. And so with those, I, I had an idea of what I was getting into and I would have lots I would have the luxury of, of looking at that space for, you know, weeks in advance. When it was in a gallery setting, I, you know, would familiarize myself with that too. And I would look at the angles of the space, the light that was there. Um, it, the, there's one, Sort of offshoot of the debris field project called Limited Entry that I did in an apartment gallery here in Chicago that was in a basement. The basement was already decorated like a 1960s rec room, and they had had some like water damage around the bottom. But you know, I got got to the point where I was realizing that these installations were were really activating the space already, so that you would become very attuned to things like cracks in the walls and water damage and f- marks on the floors and everything else. So I would end up really reacting to the site in that way and trying to capitalize on what was already there. But then I would I would also create these sweet spots within the installations that were m- marked out by a particular item, usually one that had a lot of personal value to me. Um, and that sweet spot would, if someone were to find it, would uh, indicate sort of the perfect formal composition of the installation. Uh it's not to say that you couldn't walk through the installations because I really um I really wanted people to walk through it and and see things that would, you know, jog their own memory and um of things that were familiar to them but um but yeah within the within the space themselves these sweet spots would would have to me anyway the the sort of perfect perspective of how to look at it.
1: You know, you kind of bring up something that's, that's interesting to me at least to think about is, um, you know, just the way that, that people kind of receive them and interacted with them. Was that something that, I don't know, changed the way that you, you thought about them or the way that you designed them or.
0: <laughs> I actually, it started to capitalize on people's hesitations <laughs> for the, for the installation that was in the museum of contemporary photography. They would included me in a show called photo dimensional. And um, it was, Since my work related so much to photographs and really bringing them into the three-dimensional form, a lot of people were very shocked to see this big grand-scale tar paper piece that sort of soared up to the ceiling, thinking that something was wrong in the gallery, But, um, but really, you know, that was the installation. And so... I um, And people had to walk through that space you know, to get to their offices or to get to the other galleries. And so I would start to carve out these paths. And this is where I began to think about it as like a contemplative garden of sorts, is that they, w- they would absolutely be forced to traverse through the installation. And um, in some cases, they may have to duck or they may have to make a very sharp turn or... Or the, basically, like um, I figured out how to sort of, for lack of a better word, manipulate them to walk through certain areas and 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 see something of um, greater importance that they may have overlooked otherwise.
1: That's really kind of interesting to think about.
0: In hindsight, it's it's funny because I'm I'm you know I always I always like usually to leave as much freedom to my to the viewer as possible, you know, so, the, so that they can make their own determinations of things. But yes, it's, it's funny when you work within an entire space and you have a, you know, your room is like the canvas, you, you really do have to think about how to orchestrate movement and stuff. And, and it was, it it was always true that I, these, these installations were terrible for openings. They're just terrible for a crowd. Like it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be a very quiet, um, still place to walk through and, and, um, and you you probably, and to see the different perspectives within it too it was always very tricky when there were too many people milling about
1: it's interesting because it's also then kind of like i don't know in terms of a something that requires a little bit of you know act, you know activation and participation from the you know the person trying to experience it which i mean and that could be said for anything but maybe in this case mm-hmm. it might be a little bit different too if you're kind of wandering through something or you know finding these areas that have really good you know, formal, uh, compositions.
0: Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it was, it was always sort of meant to be a contemplative space for one or maybe a few people to be in at the same time. But, but there were always, there was always something to discover whether it was, you know, uh, a little tiny piece of jewelry sticking out of a jewelry box, or or reading the title of the paperback that was included in there, or um, you know looking inside a bin and seeing the bags of photographs that had been waterlogged. Or there was um, there were lots of little little treasures to find within it that I, oh, I was hoping I'd always hoped that people would take the time to discover.
1: What kind of led you uh, uh, away towards I guess more of what you're you're working working on currently?
0: I'd always worked in sort of project mode. And, uh, even before grad school, I, I'd had, um, a few bodies of work that I spent years doing. And then, you know, once those had become exhausted, I would find something else for this one in particular, for the debris field, moving away from that. it was, it was probably a long time coming, but, um, you know, despite the feelings of being an inadequate spokesperson for victims of disasters, I, I was actually, it was wearing thin on my soul, not to sound really melodramatic, but, you know, flipping through thousands of post-disaster right. photographs and stuff. It um, it had gotten to a point where I was realizing that my affect was changing. And, um, and I think after the tsunami in Japan it, and, and just seeing how that documentation was—it was a new kind of documentation that we saw for that. It was in real time, and it was um, per, the personal point of view— was represented quite a bit, and um, and I, that to me was that was the terminus. That was just where it stopped. I I couldn't, I just couldn't face um, having to dive into that yet again. And and I I felt like I was really sort of cheating the subject matter at a point where you know I was, I my investment was slipping in it, and I was becoming interested in other things. And so there was a there was a transitional moment where. I think in two thousand twelve I had a two person show at Roots and Culture and the work that I showed in there was we we called the show Invisible Apocalypse, but I was I'd sort of shifted gears into thinking like, well, what if the apocalypse already came and everything looks the same that right. you can't even tell something may have may have happened or not. And so then I started thinking about these things that I was just observing on the world and I think I'd become so prone to seeing everything like a ruin that i would see things that were not in a state of ruin at all but i would automatically be able to jump through my imagination and imagine that as like a you know a symbol of ruin and and so certain things like overflowing trash cans or um uh street signs like the backs of street signs or things like that and so i started to get back into material exploration and i sort of took more more stake in my imagination than in the resources. And that show was, was really great for me. There were a few pieces in there that I, I really, um, latched onto and, and kind of wanted to run in that direction a little more, you know, without, after that show and, and that was 2012 was like a big year for me. I had a couple of years off and hadn't really been as active as I was before, but, but after the roots and culture show, I, um, I had a lot of time and I was just working in my studio and playing around. And I, you know, I love being a couch scientist. I love watching Nova and <laughs> perusing the NASA app. And, right. like, <laughs> and I've always had a a sort of, I don't know, layman's fascination with quantum mechanics and astrophysics. And, and not that I could ever even approach that level of knowledge with those subject matters, but I always like to, to imagine you know things that are incomprehensible but in a more optimistic way like the dumb optimism of space travel is really a wonderful thing and so and, and you know I've also always been a fan of science fiction and and this interest in space wasn't anything new it's something that I've had since I was a kid but I have a young daughter and she's now fascinated with it so I feel like all of this has sort of rekindled my fascination and and um, even just like simple quotes, as you know, that we are we're all made of stardust, and that you know, cosmic dust falls to the earth all the time and covers everything and makes up pretty much everything in our world around us. And these are the things that I love to imagine, and they make me really happy. And I, I think I had that shift where I was like, I want to make work that I, um, that you know, brings joy to me, and that, that might sound really. Trite, but it's um it's kind of the truth. Like I I really got to a point where I wanted to play and I wanted to uh, get back into the sort of uh, um, intimate scale of sculpture. I'd missed uh, you know installations are amazing and I'm sure I'll get back to that at some point in the future. But I I missed the sort of um, tactile explorations of of just working on a, a sculpture that was actually manageable and like scaled to our bodies. I started working without predetermination and just had a slew of different materials and like every other phase I've ever gone through, a lot of it was about inventing the processes. And I, I think as I started working, I realized make something without the predetermined idea of what the outcome was going to be. I really loosened up on my parameters that I was setting for myself and i I loosened up on the um the rules and regulations that I would always sort of stamp onto a project before that. you had
1: you know previously been kind of basing them or at least somewhat basing them off of all these these disaster scenes and the installation works, mm-hmm. and that you kind of you know relied more on on intuition and I mean is that something that's also very kind of hands on in the studio reacting to things, or is it something where you're kind of planning something out and then I don't know seeing how it works and then changing it?
0: I'm sure I, I, this, this new body of work, this, these new sculptures, you know, if, if down the road I become ready to move on from these, I'm sure I will. But I feel like the positive shift and the permanent shift has been away from holding on to those resources with such an ironclad fist. It was started to feel stifled by it, you know, that like, and the thing is, is this, I'd created all of those rules and regulations for myself. It was, you know, just how I was used to working—that like, there's always a certain number of things, or or a, a final end to this that's going to happen, or I have to use this in this way. And I, I just scrapped it. I said, you know, I've really had enough of the rules. Like, <laughs> it got to a point where, I um, I just wanted my imagination to rule. And it's, uh, and I know that like I still have resources, and I know I will always always be interested in subject matter. And I will always look at things and, and have those images or stories or whatever, they'll be burned onto my brain and they'll, they'll filter through more naturally. And I, um, I wanted to trust that again. And I, I felt like I'd always, I'd become so reliant on, um, the parameters of the resources that moving away from it, and just letting it sift into the work naturally was, it was great. It was, I mean, I was having a lot of fun in the studio. <laughs> I was having a great time. And I, um, I wanted to be there. I wanted to, to do as much as I could. It didn't feel like work at all. It was it was exactly what I needed. I think.
1: Gosh, it's it's it really brings up something interesting to me in that you know it's it's almost like working from direct observation versus going to abstraction in a way.
0: In a way, yeah.
1: It sounds like too like a desire previously to kind of really live up to the expectation of you know recreating this really precious thing for mm-hmm. someone. So it's it's very it's a really interesting idea.
0: Thanks. It's it that's very that's totally right on. I mean, it was it was like living up to the expectations that have... If somebody questioned it, I always had something to fall back on and say, "But no, it really, it really was represented like this, and I'm right. just the just the one acting upon it, you know." But, but yeah, I mean, I, I I do feel like a lot of this. I mean, the new work is it um it harkens back a lot to the the projects and the work that I was doing before grad school. Like, um, you know, a lot of the these I had been making these um, compressed soil slabs for a number of years and they were like one, one square foot of soil that had been pressed. I'd made, I'd like engineered and made this sort of, um, soil press. And I'd go around to these sites and I'd pick up five gallons of soil from these sites. And I'd bring it back to the studio and add a little bit of water and put it in this press. And then eventually it would come out like this, um, solid brick, of soil and um and and i'd made i think like 36 of these but they and they'd done a great service to me like i'd shown them at some museums and i had a good solo show with them and it it, um it was really great but it that also was a bit of an abstracted form of a landscape situation and so i sort of feel like um and also you know a very tidy sort of size very tidy sculptural size and so going into this um the work that's in the show right now—it's um, there's nothing uh, too grandiose in scale. There's nothing too miniature. This is all like—it's—it's uh, it's a very familiar sort of scale to me. But it's also familiar, I think, because it's—it's. It's, sort of trying to bring these very lofty ideas down to, you know, the scale of somebody's kitchen table or their backyard mm-hmm. <laughs> or things that are like very easy to understand, hence the dumb optimism. But yeah.
1: I think it does. And it, 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 I think it's really interesting too, to, to think about the way that you you'd probably have to change too, in terms of, the, or at least the way that it changes, like you can, you know, instead of having an installation where maybe you have a set amount of time, You know, to to rock this space, so to say, it's like you've Mm -hmm. got you've got time to kind of really, almost kind of finesse um, some of the pieces. I mean, is it something where too, like you, some pieces are very kind of easy to come together, at least they seem like like they are, (laughs) um, and then some are kind of
0: like labored over. Yeah, I think so. I think each one is kind of like uh, its own. It has its own personality. You know, some of these things had been lurking around my studio for probably a year or more in some form or another. And, and over time, there would be very small moves made to these components that are now parts of the sculptures. And eventually, yeah, it was all about finessing. That was the play. It was like revisiting when I wanted to, leaving it alone for months at a time. And it, when I was working on it, I I had no... Uh, show scheduled for them whatsoever. I was just just making for the sake of making, and um, and that was that was a luxury. It was really great to just be able to sit back and look and revisit it day after day, and then say, "Oh no, that needs to move over one inch or whatever needed to happen." But yeah, it, these all of the I think I would say eighty percent of the pieces in there went through some pretty long stages of transformation. Um, there are a few that you know I. I planned ahead for I planned, I would plan ahead and then make a quick move and then it was ready to go. But yeah, they kind of took a whole, whole range of, different techniques and time.
1: Well, and, and this is also something like, like you were saying before, where you're kind of thinking about, sorry, outer space. There's no, yeah. there's no, there's no real way to say it. Cause I mean, obviously, I you
0: no, know, that's exactly you good. think
1: about the titles, you know, like obviously like, and again, the, the, you know, the image that I'm, I'm sure at this point, everybody, you know, that's seen the show card is, is probably like, whoa, you know, the <laughs> and obviously, you know, you've got titles like Blue Crater.
0: Event Horizon. Right. Uh, Planet Planet 13, (laughs) yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely like a, a lightness that the titles add to the pieces, I think, because, um, you know, I don't, I don't take my, um, I don't, I don't, I'm not taking myself very seriously when it comes to the knowledge that I have about the subject matter. I know what I know and I know it interests me and I, I, um, I run with that, but you know, there's, there is a certain light, like the planet 13 one is, um. I mean, it's, the title came after the piece was made, obviously, but I was looking around and, um, you know, the root word or the Latin origin of the word planet is wanderer. And so I really wanted something about um, calling that one a wanderer, but it just wasn't working for me. And then I had read something that was recently posted about how there's three classifications of planets and there's actually 12 planets in our solar system rather than the eight classical ones that we always think of. Um, there's also the plutons and the dwarf planets. So if you consider all of them, there's 12 planets. And so, planet 13 just kind of made me chuckle a little bit because it sounds like a really unlucky planet. Mm. And this planet, <laughs> the sculpture itself has like a ring of, of brass nails around it, um, looking pretty ominous, but in like a very tongue-in-cheek way. And so, so that one I, you know, I had to I had to run with that one. And then, um, event horizon was uh, for the piece that I was affectionately calling the black hole. And, um, and as I'm learning more about the black holes, they, um, they call the surface of a black hole, the event horizon, because that's as far as they can receive data from, they can't, you know, obviously inside the black hole, it doesn't send any information back. Um, and, and there was also something, I mean, this is total tangent, but I was also really fascinated to find out that black holes are really only, they only average to be a few kilometers across. They're really small. Hmm. And for some reason I'd always thought that they were like these big, giant, you know, enormous gaps <laughs> in space that would just absorb everything around them. But in actuality, they're just like potholes in space, if nothing else. And... uh and so event horizon like you know we were also kind of chuckling about how that was this movie back in the 90s and whatever but um so there was that one uh um direction moved is a piece that is um is like a chunk of acrylic um on top of a white riser with these two yellow tape stripes on the riser and then there's a first surface mirror placed on top of the chunk of acrylic that when you move around, uh, the trick of perception creates these yellow arrows that point in all directions, and um, I mean it really is like a a trick of the eye, and it's um, so that one seemed kind of you know right for that. Um, velocity and stillness uh, is a window piece. I don't know if you saw that one yet. It's it's a mm-hmm. big piece of beam splitter glass, and it's got this uh, metal alloy sort of drips and runs that run horizontal across the surface of it. And it's, it's placed perpendicular to the, to the ground. So it's, it's up like a window almost, but, um, but that, uh, that idea of like how it as soon as I turned it, it seemed like it was traveling at a very fast speed. So that's the velocity, but it's frozen in its one state. So that's the stillness. And uh, I'm trying to think of what the other ones were. Oh yeah. Waning gibbous is like a, well, it's a moon phase. When I see it, it's a moon phase. It's a recycled plastic um, circle of um, probably about an inch thick. And I think it's about 20 inches across. Um, I coated that in iron filings. So eventually it's going to slowly rust over time, depending on the moisture in the air. And then placed on top of that is this very fancy polycarbonate tray (laughs) that looks like a (laughs) cut crystal, Tray and that's placed on the upper right side of the the outer circle, and so the negative space in between creates like an almost perfect illusion to a, a waning gibbous moon.
1: How do you know when when you're interested in something enough to to kind of move on, almost? You know, like in a, oh, in gosh. a way to that can be such an open process, and especially as someone who I I recently kind of went through some changes where like I in some cases I have no idea what to do when I'm working on something. So I need, mm-hmm. I need time away from it. Yeah. But I mean, what, what is it for you now anyways, that you kind of feel like, you know, I think I can move on from this. I think this is like kind of interesting almost enough. I don't know. It's almost like you're, you're posing a question. It seems like, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There are no answers on this one. At least, I don't know if I've ever given answers. It's they've always been questions, <laughs> but, um, but I guess, you know, I mean, I think my goal at this state is for me, I would say right now, when I stop enjoying it, I I think it's time to turn the corner and try something else. I mean, mean, I'm not I'm at the point now where I have a very rigid schedule for my studio time of what's available and what is not. And uh, and I'm not going to waste time in there struggling with something. So I feel like when the struggle surpasses the joy, it's time to go. But, um, I have, I, like I said, I mean, I really have no, I have no parameters of when this, this new stuff will stop. It, it could go for years. It you know, this could, um, it could turn into something else. It could, um, it could take a turn into installation land. I'm not really positive, but, uh, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really an advocate now for enjoying mentally what you're making in the studio. And if it's just not doing it for you, it's, it, you know, it's time to, find something that will.
1: Well, no, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. The relationship between sculpture and installation and the way that that might kind of just feed itself almost, but, um, Mm -hmm. to kind of, Mm -hmm. to kind of ask something totally non-sequitur then. So what, what's your favorite sci-fi movie?
0: My favorite sci-fi movie. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm a huge Joss Whedon fan. (laughs) (laughs) So I really, really love, um, Serenity I think that's a great one. Uh, I like the whole Firefly series that he did. The sort of Western outer space thing was pretty great. Um, I think also I haven't seen Gravity yet, but um, I had a friend who was like, yeah, it was okay. I usually trust her. he says about movies, <laughs> but I was really hoping to be completely enamored with it. Um, so I need to still see that. Um, I haven't had much movie time lately. Uh, I, have, I think I have more like... Um, science fiction books that i'm i'm super into (laughs) you know i never was a huge star trek fan i've
1: i've kind of moved away from just all non-sequiturs but there's there's just something interesting about it to me because it it seems so um so relatable in terms of you know like when i when i see like a sci-fi movie that makes me like feel very small Mm -hmm. i kind of have this like inclination to kind of like want to figure out like what device is working or how, you know, how this thing that mm-hmm. I'm observing is affecting me. And I think that in yeah. some cases it seems like that's, that is somewhat what the, the work kind of, I don't know, kind of commands out of someone is that the kind of like desire to kind of want to sit with it and, and kind of understand it or yeah. figure out how to observe it, I guess. I don't know.
0: Yeah. There's, um, I mean, there's a, There's probably a little... It was funny from the reactions I've gotten so far, everybody... It was almost like a little psychology test to hear what everyone's favorite was. Um, There was the one... uh, There's this one sculpture in there called Light Escape and Entrapment that's like a jagged sort of stack of styrofoam sheets. And then on top of it, there's silver leaf and all of these glass prisms and um, some little brass strips and some pyrite. And it's, it's, you know it's like eye candy getting in there and looking at it and stuff. And so, you know, the people who would like that, I would, I was always joking. I'm like, Oh, you're a prison person. And, <laughs> and then and the black hole people and then the blue crater people. And, and, um, you know, it, it was, it was kind of interesting. Like, it, you know, it was like a little Rorschach test for people, but, um, I was also going to say movie wise, like 2001. <laughs> Space Odyssey sure. is, Yeah, of course. Right. But, um, but even watching that, like, I mean, maybe I just have a warped sense of humor, but there's—I mean—I think there's some really laughable moments in that film that I don't think Kubrick ever meant for anyone <laughs> to laugh at. But you know, I—I th- I think about the big monolith, and I'm like, oh gosh, right? That's just like the—the the most preeminent sculpture of any movie, right? <laughs> that right. Ever existed.
1: Well, and and just because I'm extremely tangential now, it just reminds me of the the movie *Spinal Tap* <laughs> with the mini Stonehenge. Yeah. I don't know. It, You realize how much scale has a a big impact, you know, if it's not, if it's not related to the, to the person. So, um, well, so, so am I right in thinking then that this is, this is kind of where, where you're kind of exploring is this, uh, this mode where you don't have to, to worry about the I don't know what you're listening and and just kind of having fun and and making
0: probably oversimplifies it. But I, I mean, this is my primary mode right now is, you know, approaching it with some wonderment, like trying to really enjoy imagining and to practice inventing new materials and processes. And, and it's, it really is about like, it's it's giant experiment right now, but the, you know, there's no end goal in mind, I guess. And when, you know, when I see the piece and when I know it's done, to me, it looks like it's always existed, you know, and so that's kind of when I think it's final is like, oh, well, there it is. That's how it's always been. (laughs) So...
1: So, the show runs uh, at 65 grand through February 15th. And um, mm-hmm. is there anything that, that you've got coming up after that?
0: At Mount Hood College in Maryland, there's going to be some of my uh, previous work. Some pieces from Debris Field are going to be installed in a, a group show there this spring. And, uh, and then, after that, as far as the new work goes, uh, I'm just back in the studio making more
1: which sounds like a a great place to be so i think so
0: too (laughs) thanks thanks
1: again for uh taking some time to to talk to us about it
0: i've been happy to do it thank you for having me
1: thanks again to heather for joining us and please go check out her show now slices it runs through february 15th at 65 grand in chicago great show go check it out And if you want to find out more about her work, you can easily check it out at heathermeckelson.com. And as long as you're checking out work, please visit my website, davidlinaway.com. I deal mostly with painting and mixed media, and I have a number of new works up there that are based off of these photo transfers, and there's these really nice formal little compositions, geometric shapes, and things painted over the top of them. So go check them out at davidlinaway.com. Just another reminder, if you want, you can check out all the other great episodes on studiobreak.com through our archive feature. Just look on the left sidebar. Hopefully, we'll be getting a new overlift, so you won't have to do that for much longer. But again, there's tons of podcasts that we've had, different artists. Each of those episodes have links to the artists' websites. These wonderful interviews with these artists who really discuss their work candidly, and it's a great way to learn about them, so please check them all out again. You can easily subscribe to the podcast through the iTunes store. Just use that hyperlink and find us there so that you don't miss any of our new podcasts. And, of course, if you want, you can leave us some feedback there. It generally helps out with those that are podcast junkies like myself. In addition to that, please check us out on Facebook. Again, we make announcements for the new guests that are coming on. We share opportunities and make show announcements, things like that. So please like us there. You can follow us on Tumblr. That's studio-break on Tumblr. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. And if you want, follow me at David Linnaway. All right, that's a lot of uh, things to follow there. So thanks for sticking with us. We hope that you enjoyed the interview with Heather Time to go shovel snow. We'll talk to you real soon.